This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox, trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for business free for 14 days at dropbox.com business. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Celebrations edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, and this week is doubly special. Uh, Not only are we, as ever, joined by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. But we are also joined by the a very, a very special guest, Rob Cox of Breaking Views. Glad to be here, Felix. We used to work together at Reuters. He's, as Kathy told him just a minute ago, has amazingly good hair. Very good hair for radio. And <laughs> most interestingly, the Rob, Rob is sitting in for um, Jordan Weissman. It's Jordan's wedding day today, so Jordan can't be here today. That's a dirty lie, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, okay, so Jordan, you have to tell us, this is your wedding day. So I am getting married uh, later today at 6 p.m. in Central Park. It's going to be a small ceremony with a few friends and family. What are you doing in a windowless podcasting studio in downtown New York? Who would I rather be with, surrounded by, on my wedding day than my podcast mates? Now, um, I, you know, A, I need something to do until later in the day, but also beyond that... I just am sort of the opinion that, we'll talk about this, I think, during a segment, weddings just kind of need to be shrunk down to size a little bit. I think it would be better for us as as a culture and a country and just like a people if people didn't put so much stock into their actual wedding. So let's just move straight into segment one. We're going to talk about General Electric. We're going to talk about music festivals. Let's talk about this because it's fascinating. Um, Kathy O'Neill has a minimalist heuristic when it comes to parenting. Jordan has a minimalist heuristic when it comes to weddings. We, I've, I've seen research somewhere which says that one of the reasons that people are getting married at lower rates these days, that people aren't getting married as much as they used to, is precisely just because weddings are so expensive. Yeah, I spent part of yesterday trying to find a specific quantitative study uh, looking for uh, into that issue. And as far as I can tell, there isn't one that says, yes, definitively, kids are putting off marriage because it's so, so expensive. There are hints of that here and there. A lot more, like about a third of young adults say they want to be able to pay for their own wedding. I don't think it helps. I and by the way, I mean, I, I looked into how much weddings actually cost. Yeah. And it turns out they're really expensive. I mean, not. I mean, I got married almost twenty years ago, and by standards of today, my wedding was a steal. 
How much did you spend on your wedding, Kathy? Well, first of all, my parents paid for it, which is why I had a a wedding. I was just not going to get married. But um, it was like $15,000 all told with the band, everything. That's so that's actually But the average the average wedding I, I mean you've probably seen the same statistics I was yeah. looking at this this company called The Knot which is a publicly traded company by the way so if you're really into wedding economics you can go and invest you in them You can go long weddings But they, yeah you can go long <laughs> or probably short maybe that's the thing to do but it says the national average wedding spend continues to grow it's at 29,858 dollars for 2013 so twice what what you spent on your wedding um and apparently 70 billion dollars is spent annually on uh on nuptials on these parties now rob i have a question for you you have you have kids how how old are your kids uh 17 and one will be 15 on tuesday so i mean they're still probably a decade or so away from any kind of marriage i feel like Given that the wedding price inflation is a little bit like college price inflation, it only goes up and it goes up rather more quickly than anything else. Here's a here's a concept for you. What you should do is you should start building up a wedding fund mm. and you should invest the entire wedding fund in the not stock. It's called X. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Right. It's well, the natural it's a hedge. hedge. It's, it's a, a hedge. hedge. It, well, it's called the XO group, to be clear, like XO. I love you. That kind of thing. And they've expanded into other things, including the bump. So what happens after, you know, Jordan, you'll learn about this after your wedding night. Um, <laughs> if you don't when know. When a man and a woman love each other. Man and a woman love each other. There's certain things happen. And by Biologically, sometimes children are created. Well, before we go to the kids, Wait, I, I actually I do oh. want to come back to the thirty-one thousand dollar number. Or yeah, that's actually, what I, so I think it's up to it's up to uh, thirty-one in twenty fourteen. Apparently, oh, man. your numbers are a little outdated. Yeah, this is twenty thirteen. Yeah, twenty fourteen. Wow, you're you're not kidding about inflation. Okay, <laughs> but so the the trick about that number is it's an average. And a couple of years ago, Will or Amos at Slate actually went and got in touch with the Knot to get a little deeper into their numbers. And it turns out the median price that they find is about fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, it's 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 a fat tail thing. Yeah. And it's also selection bias. I saw the same yeah. article, really good article. They basically survey people who read magazines about weddings. Yeah. <laughs> so guess what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but I think that they're, the, the this number gets repeated every year so much that it does create for a certain class, I think, of American um, upper middle class, let's put it that way, a, a sort of distorted perception of it's how anchoring. Much, yeah, everyone exactly. thinks that everyone else is spending thirty thousand dollars on their wedding, and so they think they're saving if they go down to fifteen thousand. And right. so, but there's also there's also the actual price. I mean, as Felix said, like the actual the actual price of the wedding. So now that you, if you buy services from someone, they say, okay, well. Yeah, the minute, the, minute you say, the minute you say, you know, can you do something for a wedding? It's like, that's code for, can you please quadruple the price of your <laughs> so services? When, <laughs> I, I, so when I realized we were going to do a, a small wedding, um, it was shortly after my fiance, soon to be bride, uh, came back from a wedding fair. We, she, we have a friend who's actually getting into wedding planning as well. And she wanted to bring a, a bride to be with her to kind of meet some of the vendors. And Jess, uh, comes back from this and she looks at me it, it i swear to god it, it was almost as if she had come back from a war she was practically shaking and she reaches into her pocket and takes out this little bag of confetti it was just a little pieces of colored plastic slips and she just goes this this is five dollars this one little <laughs> bag of confetti is five dollars we cannot get married <laughs> just like and of, you know you know we calm down it's like we'll just do something small and that's that was kind of the moment of realization like this is insane so. Well, can I also throw in another thing as the the woman on this panel here? Um, 
what really offends me isn't just about the money. It's about the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I loved about my wedding is it was at a hotel called the Charles Hotel in Cambridge where there was a guy who was in charge of doing it. And I literally met him with my husband twice for a half an hour each. And then yeah. we came to our wedding. He did it. But nowadays it seems like that's impossible. It seems like especially the bride is expected to spend basically a full-time job for three months up to the wedding now, to do the, it. The only, thing, the only caveat to this is that I'm an older guy, mm-hmm. and so I'm starting to see second weddings, and they're a lot, <laughs> they're, they're lot lower-key. <laughs> so uh, in most cases, they're sort of like, yeah, we're going to have a party. We've rented a little private room. We're going to go to the city hall. We're going to... And then they spend it all on a terrific honeymoon, uh, which, which, by the way, there seems to be some correlation. There was, in, in preparation for this, I did a little bit of research. And one of the things I found was some study that some professors had done at Emory University where they tried to look at the correlation between the, the spending on your wedding and the, and the happiness of your wedding, you know, sort of, you know, marital, uh, spousal. All right, wait, wait, before you tell us, um, yeah. Jordan, what's your, what's your intuition on this one? What's the correlation between how much you spend and how happy you are? I think it's you spend less and you're You're going to say it's extremely low. No, I, no, I, I, think it's negative. Negative. I think it's negative. I think there's a yeah, negative correlation. There seems to be. The truth is they did all this study and they came up with no clear conclusion, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. Which, but, you know, that's what academics do half the time. But there, there, there seemed to be two. There was one correlation, which was the more you if you spend a lot on your wedding ring. And the honeymoon, or or either or, you seem to have a higher rate of success in your marriage. Well, yeah, because spending on how... money on experiences makes people happier. Right? Is a wedding ring an experience? Well, that uh, it depends. If the, it's an investment. over the money, I think, is an What's, experience. Do, 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 do you have? Do you have? Did you spend money on rings at least? Yeah, we did spend money on rings. There you go. You yeah. spend money on rings, yeah. and you're having how many honeymoons? Uh, okay, so this is what we decided: is we are doing we're doing two honeymoons. Um, instead, we're taking the money we would have spent on a big wedding. This is the anchoring, right? This yeah. is like the money that theoretically people spend on the weddings. The $31,000. saved. We actually, so it wasn't what we, we, lo- we started, we had in mind trying to do a, a kind of a modest, uh, regular wedding in New York City. And we found it was almost impossible to do something with any sort of a, even like at a, most restaurants or venue with more than a, a dozen people for less than like $15,000. I mean, it was insane. And so we're like, okay, let's say like, Let's. How, what is the ideal budget we would actually have, and for what we it, could we throw a better wedding party, or could we have two better vacations for that? And we concluded that for our actual budget that we would be willing to spend, we'd have two better vacations. And so that is so how. Where we, are you going? Uh, so our plan for the week after is uh, after the wedding is we're heading to Lisbon and Madrid, um, and then uh, in January we're planning to take a trip down to Argentina for a while. I just want to throw in for you listeners that you're not here, but in, in, in Jordan sounds like he's being taken pretty seriously here, but he's wearing a tiara. A I am <laughs> silver and pink tiara with a veil. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. I'm getting, ti- I have tiara envy right now. <laughs> <laughs> it looks very pretty on you. I, and, but yeah, I can, I can um, absolutely attest that multiple honeymoons is a very good idea for Reasons not entirely under my control, I wound up with three honeymoons. That's, uh, Felix, again, you're one-upping me. Seriously? (laughs) Wait, can can I just, can I bring up one other part of the whole wedding complex? So there's there's the wedding, there's marriage, and as you know, statistically, people who stay married tend to be sort of socioeconomically better off, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm, sure, I'm sure it's one of these chicken and egg questions. But um, there is a whole other business here, which I don't know if you've seen this a couple of weeks ago, a company um, 
decided to go public called Avid Life Media. Uh, yes. And Avid Life Media is the parent company of a website called AshleyMadison.com, which is focused uh, entirely on hooking hookups between married people. Now, is so this actually whole other public, economic, or have they found they're going? Exchange? Well, they tried to. They, yeah, they they were trying for something in Canada. You know, when you can't list in Vancouver, where is there <laughs> left to go? So they're going to Ireland or something? Yeah, right? no, they're oh, going really, to London. The they're going model. to London. The, I, I don't know the business. The model, business model uh, but I, is the business model is that. If I want to have an affair, I go on to AshleyMadison.com. I find someone else who wants to have an affair, but there's payment, I, you know, to Ashley Madison to... It's like Match.com yeah, for, for, for married people, for, for yeah. adulterers. And apparently they're, they're wanting to raise $200 million. So, you know, there is a, there's a whole, it's not just the wedding. It's the, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things yeah. that, for, that for comes. For the first so gotta, time in your life, as of tomorrow, you're going to be able to have an affair. No, it's, <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, if you pay for it. Ashley, <laughs> Felix, you were talking about anchoring and expectations for what you spend on weddings. AshleyMadison.com has been doing something similar with adultery. They keep trying to talk up what percentage of a city uses their service to normalize the idea that, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, have a little on the side. Everyone else is doing it. Like, literally, everyone else you know is doing this. Well, apparently, uh, 21% of men admit to extramarital affairs, and women are at 15%. But apparently, the 15% is up from something like 9%. What so it, it's been steady for way, men. By the way, um, I used to worry about that discrepancy because mm. I'm like, just as many women as men. It turns out... They're uh, both lying, but they're both underlying. Like right. it's actually like probably the women must. I mean, both. by uh, by like we thought, thought it was in the yeah. middle somewhere that men were exaggerating and women were underestimating, but it, they're both underestimating. But women by more yes. is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah but I think uh, one of the big lessons here is never trust a weddings company to tell you how much weddings actually cost, and never trust a company that specializes in adultery <laughs> to tell you how often adultery actually happens. Uh, but anyway, but so. we'll get to look into their books when they go public, which will be fascinating. That's true. So, Rob, thank you for that segue. That's my cue to ask Kathy to talk about General Electric. But first, we need to talk about Dropbox for Business. It's exactly like Dropbox, which you all are already using. It's the same experience. It's the same built into the Finder or whatever you use. It's the same sharing tool. It's the same, like, never need to worry about storage. But it adds all manner of things which businesses like, like centralized administration and onboarding and offboarding and control and third-party security and administration solutions and all of those things which business people want. They can just have their employees just continue doing what they're already doing and working in the way that they're already working, and they get to be on top of it all. It's really quite clever. And, of course, it is completely secure. So... Go out there, try Dropbox for Business free for 14 days at dropbox.com slash business. So, Kathy, yes. So, GE. GE. Yeah, GE has done this, something really unusual in the business world. They've decided to get smaller. And not just a little bit smaller, but no, massively, but massively smaller. They decided to the kill off GE Capital, one of their their finance arm, which is worth $363 billion right now. And accounts for nearly all of the money on their balance sheet. Is that right? Well, well, yeah. I mean, GE Capital is something like a $500 billion balance sheet. And it, it was bigger. Um, they've been trying to shrink it. But, but I mean, look, they've decided to not be a bank anymore. That's the, that's the, the big thing. And, and so, I mean, 
as an industrial company, your balance sheet doesn't, you don't need a whole lot of receivables and you don't need, you know, you don't need that kind of a balance sheet. You just need to have a business that has working capital, that finances, building planes, engines, turbines, and that kind of thing, which is great. When you say they're they're shrinking, though, I would just say the stock went up like 10% when they said this. So the company's market cap increased. Well, Rob, you're the, you're the person who understands these things best around this table. GE has just said that it is going to sell off GE Capital. Yes. When it does that, it's going to get like a really big check. And then it's presumably going to like dividend most of that money back to its shareholders. Mm-hmm. And then once it's done that, its market cap is going to be much lower. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, the, the point is it, investors have been valuing General Electric like this this industrial company that's been sort of weighted down by a crummy bank. And a bank, nobody wants to be a bank these days. You're highly regulated. Your earnings are, you know, you don't get valued on your earnings. You get valued on your, on your uh, book value, right? So, no, so, so if you look at their, their price-to-earnings multiple, it's lower as a result of the fact that they have this big, lumbering, highly regulated business. So the, the, the very fact that they're getting out of that and m- – reinvesting some of the proceeds into their core businesses and some of it giving back to their shareholders is actually a positive. So that brings up the question I had, which is, what is the story? Because if you, depending on what story, you know, who you read, if you read Harvard Business uh, Review, they, they explain this as a way of getting back to basics. But if you read other accounts of it, it's like they didn't want to be part of, uh, considered by, you know, like financial regulators as what are called SIFIs, mm. systematically important financial institutions. Yeah. They want to avoid regulation. Right. So is it one or the other? Is it both? Well, I mean, actually, let's step back even further, right? So this General Electric always used to finance people who wanted to buy toasters and things like that, going way back, decades back. But in the, in the 1990s, principally, uh, J- Jack Welch, who was the CEO, had this great, op- great idea. He said, okay, we're a AAA rated company, so we can go out into the capital markets and raise money at like almost nothing, like like the U.S. government, uh, or you know. And so they went out and did that. And by the way, they could raise raise it really cheaply by going to in the commercial paper market, places like that, where you had short term uh, loans, effectively. So you go out and say, hey, we're going to raise you know billions of dollars at thirty days, and then we then take that money we're raising for almost nothing, and we go out and invest in. And in, in, in lend to a little bit more r- riskier profile uh, borrowers. Um, the more we do that, that we get the spread, right? And as long as investors are happy with us just going out thirty days and lending you money, and you know we keep doing that over and over again, um, we make this huge. We make this huge spread. And 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 this but, and the wonderful thing about this is that it's just a license to print money. It's yeah. free money. It's free profits. The only thing that could possibly go wrong is if there's some big global credit crunch and no one will, yeah. will roll over your yeah. short-term paper. Right. So they had 70-something billion of commercial paper when uh, the, 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 that stuff hit the fan in 2008. You could say shit. shit. Oh, okay. I wasn't yeah. sure. If <laughs> so when that happened, they were stuck. So they, you know... They had to have a $50 billion government. So they had to go to the government and say, you need to back our, our, basically, you're guaranteeing our bonds. As as a result of that, you know, after, not only did they put their entire, all their world-class industrial businesses at risk, because in a real capitalistic um, uh, uh, scenario, they would have had to sell assets at fire sale prices to pay, to, to, to fund their business. They didn't have to because the government stepped in. But at the, after that, 
they, they, the government said, hello, oh, oh, Europe, you know, this is a problem. Because we had to step in and help you, we're going to have to basically b- back you. Right. And as a result, you have to put all this capital against it. You're stuck basically being regulated by the uh, Treasury and the Federal Reserve and that kind of thing. And, th- and that's that's dragged down the company. Th- this is a I wouldn't call this a bold move. Like, you know, really, it, it's a dramatic move in the sense that it is such a big number that they're talking about uh, reducing their balance sheet by. They'll still have a balance sheet because they will still be lending to um, p- people who buy the you know engines and turbines and things like that. But that's like vendor financing. But right? in, the other thing that's, um, you know, going back to the core business idea. Yeah. Like these, I mean, I looked up GE. I mean, GE is kind of like background. We just know GE. It's a huge company in every sense of the word. It was one of the original Dow industrial averages companies. And it's the only, only one, one that's still, still existing. Yeah. So in a real sense, I think they did have this sort of reputation that was totally ruined. So it's a black eye and they're yeah. trying to fix that. Well, they now. lost the AAA credit rating, you know, for instance. Um, you know, this is a chance to repair it. Now, you know, in Jeff Immelt's defense, he's the, the, the chairman and CEO, you know, before the crisis, I mean, if you were looking at their business and saying, okay, this, this you know, sort of scenario planning, you might have seen this as a risk when you've got 50% of your earnings coming from this arbitrage, effectively, regulatory and financial arbitrage. Um, but, I mean, you, if you had just said, look, we're just going to do it now, we're going to get out of the business, um, you would have been vilified for it. You would have lost your job, probably. Um, now, he's got an opportunity to do it. Certainly, I mean, you know, the, the markets are there. So there are going to be buyers for these so assets. So this is what I want to know. Who's going to buy GE Well, here's the Capital? funny thing. So it's going to be the other SIPPIs. So Wells Fargo has already bought a chunk of the commercial real estate. Uh, Blackstone, oh, Blackstone bought another chunk. Bought, bought the biggest chunk. $23 billion. They're not a SIPPI, right? So so it's not. But Wells Fargo is. It's real estate. It's just plain holding real estate. Yeah. But you have now a, something like a $100 billion uh, cons, uh, a loan portfolio. Um, that it looks like Wells Fargo will acquire. So that makes the biggest bank or the second biggest bank even bigger. Oh, goody. I, I do think, um, speaking of big and possibly too big to fail, there is kind of just one point I want to make, which is that a lot of people are treating this as a an amazing test case for whether or not Dodd-Frank has worked. Um, just the idea that essentially, you know, they came up with this idea of naming it's, uh, or companies as uh, systematically uh, important institutions, SIPIs, uh, financial institutions. And there there was a disagreement where you had a lot of liberals and Democrats saying, we need the power to do this because of situations like GE, where you had essentially a company that was acting like a bank, but not regulated like, like a bank. And then they had to contort the laws in any way they could in order to give them this sort of bailout or to guarantee their debt. Um, and then you had a lot of conservatives saying, well, no, if you label them, if you label them a SIFI, it's just going to inscribe too big to fail into law, and they're going to act even more recklessly because they know they're always going to be able to get bailed out in the end. And w- one kind of smart point I've seen about this is that the fact that GE in the end decided that the regulatory burden was so great and that it just was not worth even being in this business anymore was sort of a sign that the negatives outweighed the positives. Um, well, I mean, you see, I can I can kind of see that, except okay. for GE... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, is kind of unique. It's more or less the only shadow bank, which is a SIFI, right? Well, it's, all of the yeah, other SIFIs are all it's banks. A, it's a it's a non well, it is it does have a banking charter, but it's but so it does collect deposits and things like that. But, but remember, they have something else to fall. It's not just fall back on. They do have you know leading infrastructure indust, industrial businesses that are that are being overshadowed by that. So if you're a bank, if you're Wells Fargo, you're J.P. Morgan, 
It's not like you can say, well, we're going to leave this business and then get into I would uh, that, something else. I guess. Let, me, let me pick up that, yeah. uh, that, that thread, though. I don't, I don't think this proves that being a SIFI is so onerous that people are going to be like, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. But it does prove that you can break yourself up. That's true. Which, you know, is like the argument by some of the too big to fail banks is like, oh, sorry, it's just so but hard. That's partly a function of of the t- of times being better. So if you look at, at some of these businesses, they can go out and be financed without deposits, right? They can go out into whole, what they call wholesale markets, raise funds like some a bank like CIT, which not really banks, a lender. But you, uh, you had a couple of examples of these sort of companies that are able to go out in the capital markets bondholders are happy to sort of finance their business and they can function. Now that was, that wouldn't have been possible in 2008 to 2000 and what, nine, 10 Felix. Right. So you couldn't have gone out there and be like, Oh, look, we don't have deposits. We'd love you to, and, and to back our business. That's also a function of the fact that rates are incredibly low, artificially low, like crazy low. And bondholders have given up um, any semblance of caring we, about we whether have, they get any returns. We have wound up in the world now. And I think GE, is is like the the capstone of this where financial institutions whether they're banks or not are financial institutions and you know real world companies if they make things like toasters are not financial institutions um there used to be a lot more mingling of that um and i have no idea if you know walmart even wants to start a bank anymore i always wanted to start a bank but like you know maybe they're just going to look oh at, i bet they don't right yeah. i mean because they, w- w- they could easily become systemically important over time <laughs> yes. right um th- it'd be much better to just do check cashing and you know money transfers yeah. and gouge people that way than to, so that's to good. take we, on a balance we, we get to keep all of these financial institutions in one place where we can look at them are you telling me rob that wells fargo is on the very verge of breaking itself up no absolutely not they're, they're i mean not at this point. Well, I don't know about Wells Fargo, but someone like a Citigroup that has very divergent businesses, so wholesale institutional securities, investment banking businesses have nothing to do with, you know, going in and cashing checks and 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 retail financial services or indeed a global transfer mechanism like they have this 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 kind of business. You could see companies like that potentially break themselves up. I mean, at Citi, I've argued in many cases for many years um, that it could be broken up and that would be both better for shareholders and actually better for regulators. Regulators so right now their interests are aligned and capital markets would probably almost definitely fund like say a corporate focused kind of Goldman Sachsy type city business separate from a retail financial institution. Let's do it. Break up the big banks. Woo! Okay. Um, we're going to move on to music festivals and the one thing which marriage and music festivals have in common, wait, I'm not even going to go there, but here's a plug for another <laughs> Panoply podcast. Hey, I'm David Wallace-Wells, the host of Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm here with Maureen O'Connor. This week we're going to be talking about... Loud sex, sex dolls, and the sexiness of our avatars on My Idol. You can subscribe to Sex Lives at iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm. So, Rob, what, like, okay, I'm going, to do a quick, I'm going to do a quick quiz here because Kathy is my favorite um, live music aficionado. Um, I do like me a festival. And when, what was the last festival you went to, Kathy? I went to Clearwater last June. I'm going back next month. And it's how exciting. how much did you spend when you I went spent to Clear, Clearwater? No money there because I was a volunteer living in a tent and working in the kitchen. Do you when you think about I got a the free people t-shirt. like you <laughs> who who you know are sitting in tents and going to these festivals? Do you think this is a multi billion dollar business right here? 
I, I know in some sense I do. Like I've gone to other festivals like Gray Fox where I bring my kids and I pay for all sorts of things. And there's all these like people setting up with their, you know, handmade leather artisanal goods. And you're just in that vibe. And you're just like, yeah, I'll spend $400 on a new hat. This cowboy hat looks great <laughs> on me. And these boots, are you kidding me? <laughs> so you do get into that, um, you get into that very unique kind of, um, it's like a funny money concept in some of these it's actually, like Vegas some of the yep. yes it's like play money it's like monopoly money and sometimes they actually do give you monopoly money you have to like give your cash and they give you this fake money it makes it easier to spend money and you're also just kind of like secondhand smoke high the entire weekend so you're doing crazy things That's so yes quote secondhand <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> This is the woman who demanded we do a smoking up behind the bleachers episode of Slate Money Seriously, a while second back. Hand, second hand. Anyway. Second hand. <laughs> so why are we talking about this, Rob? Right, because this week Live Nation, which is this big, you know, conglomerate, otherwise known as Ticketmaster, but they're they they bought a, a majority stake in Bonnaroo, which is the the ultimate jam band music festival held on a seven hundred acre farm called I think the farm in t- Tennessee every June, um, and they've been doing it since like two thousand and two. Anyway, this is this is sort of the consolidation, the corporatization of the music festival business. So Live Nation, they bought half of this Bonnaroo Music Festival from the founders. They bought uh, a majority stake in the the company that does Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits. They've also bought companies that do that. One does like Electric Daisy Carnivals. That yeah, one's called. Yeah, yeah, they, they, so, they have like Coachella. Well, There's, no Coachella. Um, is separate. Oh, that's, separate. That's AEG, which is uh, Philip Anschutz. But um, this is you're basically seeing uh, the consolidation and corporatization of the music festival. The music festival as a business has really come into its 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 own over the last ten years, um, which is fascinating because you know as you've seen digital well recorded and digital music sales plummeting over the last 15 years. You've seen live music going up and the, the the real growth area around that has actually been festivals. And it goes back a little bit to what you were saying about people pay for experience. I mean, yeah. in your case, a honeymoon. I think people really do value experience. But, so that's why but what has packaging. changed? I, I had why, why are people paying so much more for music festival tickets now than they were 15 years ago? It's, it's not just the tickets. So that's part of it. But they're making their money off corporate sponsorships. That's where these festivals actually haul in the dollars, which clarifies why it works so much, by, which clarifies a lot about why they are, by the standards of the music business, a moneymaker. And I want to step back here. Live Nation makes its money. I mean, it, it's known for owning tons and tons of venues around the country. If if there's even a moderately large venue in your city, there's a fairly good chance it's owned yeah. by Live Nation. Um, but like an individual music venue is not a particularly profitable thing to run. It's it's a very low margin business. Um, a concert, fe- these concerts, the, these festivals, when they first started off, also were pretty low margin businesses. Um, I believe it was Coachella actually lost money its first year. Yeah. Um, the, the, they had to work out a special deal. Well, that's why they, AG got yeah. 50% of the Golden Voice, which was the uh, shareholder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, had so they had to sell, essentially. The guys who found it were these indie guys, and they just realized they couldn't do it on their own, so they needed to go out to a bigger company and bring them in. Um, the thing is, once you can kind of scale, uh, the number of people who show up at these things, you can then start attracting corporate sponsors who will say, okay, I'll pay for you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you money because I'm exposing my brand to so many eyeballs. However, big companies tend to be better at working out those sorts of deals because they, again, have so the this, scale. So this makes perfect sense to me now. Live Nation can sell corporate sponsorships across a dozen different festivals to right. Pepsi or whoever. Right. And, or Honda or whoever or, and. At the, so number one, they can they can actually say we are going to put your brand in front of millions of, and this is the key thing, 
young people. Well, and, like, and in is, a different way, it's not like just saying we're going to put banner ads up on a website. Exactly. This is, you're going to be part of the, an immersive part of the experience, right? But the, but the important, the, the reason, I think, I mean, the answer to my question about why now why are music festivals a big business now? Why, why wasn't this the case 15 years ago? Is that 15 years ago, there were other ways of reaching that audience. And now, with that audience constantly just on their phones the whole time and no real way to reach those people on their phones, this is the only game in town. Yeah, but also, it's, you have to think about it from the band's perspective, too. Like, bands, in 15 years ago could sell I mean they were they were making money off recorded music so they didn't need to tour as much well it wasn't quite as big a part of the economics as it is now and and so the ability to sell out a, a bunch of different venues and they may be through um, a promoter like Live Nation um, actually going to do doing these great marquee sort of events you know festivals is a great way to show that you're a great live act you do a 45 minute set there you're gonna you're you're gonna be able to then sell in that local area or around the country your when you come to town i mean they see it as sort of like i mean a sense of what radio used to do yeah there's also there, there's another just coming back to the consolidation of the industry um, there's another angle to that which is live nation of course owns single venues around the country so they can strike deals where they say hey you're gonna play Bonnaroo or whatever, um, you're not going to be the main stage. You're going to only get X amount of money, 15K, whatnot. But uh, we're also going to book you at all these venues uh, around. So yeah. that's part of your deal now. And so they can offer, again, scale to the band. And they've got its vertical integration. They sell the tickets. Yeah. The whole, but I mean, to your point, if you look at the, it's kind of funny if you look at their results, their, their quarterly results, all the margin comes from the sponsorship. Yeah. So that basically everything else is about getting the, putting the, the event on. It's but wait, almost I mean, like wait, a watch. Can, can you explain we, we have, how this sponsorship is manifested in the festival so it depends like if you go to uh, Coachella now this is not a live nation that's AEG Golden Voice um, Golden Voice by the way is the name of the, the, the special weed that the founder the original founder uh, <laughs> said you'd hear the voices of angels so oh, was, yeah. anyway okay. but, um, but so, so you, you'll go and there'll be the beer tent will behind everything will be like Heineken beer and there'll be like this and the chill tent. Heineken. Well, and you'll go in and like have like there's a chill tent you can sit down and like I don't know, you know, sleep off your buzz or whatever it is. Charge um, your phone. You'll see like Honda st- will do I don't know, like maybe they drive everybody around the 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 venue, maybe they've got um, you know, branding in various places. It's it's not you know, it's it's kind of it's just folded into the whole infrastructure, right? So that's the way they do it. And there's some versions of it that are more crass than others. There was yeah. uh, this one festival, I don't know if it's still going, but around D.C. called Free Fest, where it was free. That was what was awesome about it. But it was sponsored by this brand, Kyocera Phones. I mean, like a third-tier cell phone company, essentially. And there were just all over little like tents where you could go and try the Kyocera phone and take pictures with the yeah. Kyocera phone. And it was just all every you know the brand was plastered on every stage and it was a little bit gross but at the same time you got to go see a bunch of awesome bands for free because so, the, the point of a festival if you ask me is to sort of join a cult for like three days yeah <laughs> and when you're in that cult you're kind of very vulnerable to suggestion because well, you it's know, a cult one, one of the funny things and you'll appreciate this Felix is that all of this sort of stems, stems from like Glastonbury which was the original <laughs> kind of music festival you know three days in the British country side in the mud. Lots of uh, mud. Always yeah, all, lots of mud. But, you know, Michael Levis, the founder of that, you know, he kind of, he had like David Bowie come out or, or the guy, Mark Bolton, T-Rex come out, you know, back in like 1971. And eventually when they started charging and, and all the money went to like Oxfam and various NGOs uh, that they were that they were supporting. And they still do that. That was it. But, but if you look back, the guys from who founded Coachella 
basically in 97 they were there at at Glastonbury. In fact, I think it was it was they were watching Radiohead had just released this album called OK Computer. Wow. It was a pretty okay record, right? Yeah. Um and a month before, they put on what you know, widely viewed as one of the greatest festival sets ever. Um and he was at that show and said this is what we need to do. We're going to do it in the in Coachella in the the, the, the you know, in and we're near keep Palms. The money. And, yeah, <laughs> and we're going to keep the money. Now, of course, they didn't make they it in the first year or two, but um they had to bring it. And then even the guys who who um who are behind Bonnaroo went to Coachella in like oh one or something like that and said, oh, this is amazing. Let's just do it over in Tennessee with a little slightly more jam bandy aspect. So, but it, it all springs forth from Glastonbury, which and, was and, and originally kind works. of like it's a... People like going to these things. They're yeah. fun. But it's to your point, Kathy. I mean, they, people want to go and like be with their fellow freaks for the weekend. So, so let me ask you a question about Live Nation, which is if they are now actually making money by providing fun experiences to people who enjoy themselves at festivals. Does that mean they might be a bit less evil on the Ticketmaster side of things? Uh, I, I doubt that. Um, I mean, look, the, there's been competition in that space. So you can go all in various places. I mean, I think fees haven't risen. The growth in fees has been kind of stopped, which is good. Um, but you look, I mean, they're going to find other ways to make, to make, a, make up the money. Um, but they're still kind of like... Not the only game in town, but one of the big. And remember, they had, they were by the, the the Department of Justice and the FTC forced them to kind of basically open up to competition or force that business to open up to competition when Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation, which was a promoter, right? So um, it's not as evil as it used to be. But you know, there is also another funny historic thing to this, which was that the Coachella guys um, first did a in 1993, I think it was the first time they used that, that place. It's called the, what is it? The, it's an empire polo ground out in now Palm Springs. First time they'd use it for rock music was 93. It was Pearl Jam did a show out there that was basically the, can I say this? Fuck you Ticketmaster show. Um, and, uh, and they, they did it out there. Um, and which is kind of funny. It's kind of ironic. Okay. It would be more ironic, of course, if, Ticketmaster Live Nation were the ones buying Coachella, um, but it is kind of funny. It's sort of full circle, right? Yeah. I would, uh, I would just say. I mean, they have opened up to competition. I don't think there's any sign though that Ticketmaster's fees are coming down. No, no that, they're not that, growing. Yeah, they're, I, I didn't. Yeah, I made yeah, a it's, point. They're, they're, they're not coming. They're still down. evil. No. They're just they're, not getting evil. The other thing, just because I <laughs> yeah. feel like we're going to get a letter exactly. from some of our audience saying you didn't emphasize how evil this company is enough. So I just want to say one other downside to the consolidation that we're talking about is that also does give. Um, these this handful of companies even more power over bands basically saying if you don't play our festival you don't play our venue you're going to get frozen out of these about you know the other places we control around the country so there are downsides from the artist's perspective to this as well yeah this is a large part of the of the touring industry now mm-hmm. yeah. no i mean it is like i said it's pretty cr- the, the idea that you could get a um, headlining or or even like the Saturday 7 p.m. slot at Bonnaroo, Coachella, uh, is a big deal. I mean, that's going to help you across when you go around the world and and try to sell you sell out any other venue. So, yeah, I think you're right. There is a there is a downside. I to also that. do wonder how this is going to uh, play or interact with Live Nation's artist management side and how what you know if it's going to yeah. lead to them getting favored or whatnot. But that's of a whole other thing. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's time for numbers. It is. And Jordan, because you're getting married, you're going to go last. Okay. Oh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> we're going to force you to stay in the studio until the bitter end. <laughs> Kathy, what's your number? My number um, is 18%. And so, you know, 
every now and then you see a poll uh, like published by Bloomberg or Reuters or someone <laughs> about about um, how bitter Wall Streeters are about their bonus checks. <laughs> It's always like uh, half people survey were disappointed by their bonus check amount. Well, it was one of those things, but buried it, it was Bloomberg. Buried in it was like um, a question of what the future of Wall Street jobs were going to be, and a full eighteen percent of Wall Streeters in a Bloomberg poll thought there will be another financial crisis in the next decade, and they chose this above the other options, which were there was a gradual shrinkage of Wall Street um, as an industry. There's going to be disruption by Silicon Valley. Status quo, that things aren't going to change that much, or growth. So like a full fifth of Wall Streeters are like, oh my God, watch the fuck out. Great. That's scary. Great. Rob, what's the number? Well, how about uh, 400 million? I like that. All right, 400 million is the amount that... uh, that we're that the two fighters on Saturday's big match are going to take away, right? So, so Manny Pacquiao and and Money Boy Floyd Mayweather, right? So that's four hundred million dollars. Is so that's how much they're that's being how much paid. they're being paid. It's like it's not clear, but I mean Floyd's going to get more because he's got money in his. Does it matter name. who wins? Uh, it it does matter. I think there's you know there are obviously incentives to win, but it, all that matters is they get into the ring. These two aging yeah. fighters and uh, and why is just it such for, a big deal? Why? Well, you know, it's, I mean, not to, you know, boxing is a lumpy business, right? And it's like every few years you get these, these, these huge title fights, right? So you had, I mean, think back to Ali Frazier, think back to sort of Tyson things. You don't, I mean, you can't predict it. It's not like, who knows what the next one's going to be, but there's just, I don't know. I mean, people just love to see a couple of dudes beat each other up. They were well they were the two they were the two greatest fighters yeah. for their weight or for, uh, for their weight class or and really they for any fought. weight class. Yeah, they and they've refused to fight for years and years and years and finally they came to an agreement. And I think the reason it's happening now is cuz they're both basically right at that age where they this is it. They have to do it now or they will both they're be like, a little late too late 30s. Old, which is pretty much your limit. Like yeah. you can you can box until about your late 30s and at that point there are a f- they're like Archie Moore managed to do it until his 40s. He was but, a, hang on a but second. that's really rare. Did they refuse to do it just because they weren't getting paid enough, it was a sort was of hold a, out to get more money. There spread. was a, there was a controversy over whether uh, Pacquiao would do drug testing, and Mayweather was insisting he do it. Pacquiao was saying no, and then, but yeah, I think it was probably all money sorts of too. Conditions. Yeah, there are all sorts all of sorts things. Of I mean, when you got four, when you know, four hundred million dollars is a lot to play for. I'm not sure that that was you know they projected out the discounted cash flow of the of holding back, but it certainly is. is yeah. In is hindsight, quite a refusing to fight looks like it was quite a lucrative decision. Yes, not to mention it probably saved them from a bit of brain damage along the way yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> worth I'm, it um, um, 400 million dollars is actually less than the amount of money that Ev Williams the founder of Twitter lost on Wednesday last week my um, <laughs> he, he personally lost about half a billion dollars um, my number is 25% there's something interesting has been happening this earnings season um, Twitter and Yelp and LinkedIn, LinkedIn all fell 25% after coming out with earnings with disappointing revenue growth. It's not like revenues are shrinking. It's just they're not growing as fast as the shareholders thought they would, and they got slammed. 25% in three different country, in three different companies in the space of, what, two days? Yeah. But, but you got to look at the valuations these things are on. That's the reason. I mean, so so I think Twitter came out and said that they're going to be their revenue would be eighty million short of the expectations, and yet they then lost seven billion dollars of market cap. So you do that. That's like a, I don't know, whatever, almost nine hundred times, right? So it's 
it, 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 the problem is these things are built on the notion that growth is going to be explosive and it's all been baked into these stock prices, right? So it just became slightly less explosive or something. Well, no, then you, then you're like, wait a second. These things aren't these, – these guys, they have great platforms. They have great these great products, but they, they really don't know how to monetize them to the extent that they told us they did. And that's scared. I think that's just – now, why is it 25%, not 35%? I don't know. Maybe 25 is <laughs> – Maybe it should be 95%. Maybe they should just like you – know. <laughs> I mean, they're still pretty highly valued even – so once that's you do saying, the numbers yeah. again, it's not like, oh, well, now it's, you know, it's, it's between ship- General Electric or Twitter. No, there's still yeah, a no, if, huge if, if you If you, if you lose 25% of your net worth and you've lost half a billion dollars, that still means you're still a billionaire. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you're a lesser billionaire. Lesser, yeah. All right, John, you're this going is, last. Yeah, this is... Happy uh, wedding day. Thank you. So my number is a little uh, uh, away from finance, but uh, it's 147,000, which is the uh, number of recent U.S. immigrants from China in 2013. Why is this important? Well, apparently, according to the Wall Street Journal and a recent study, uh, China is now the number one source of immigrants to the United States. Uh, it is no, no longer Mexico. And actually, uh, China is now followed by India, although statistically, they're about... it's. India is about dead even with Mexico. So just the the face of immigration in this country is changing significantly. And that has all sorts of uh, political ramifications and as well as, I think, geopolitical and ramifications as well. Do we know how old these Chinese immigrants are? I don't know. No, that I didn't see. Unfortunately, it was um, the paper was presented at a... uh, at a conference, and it was reported on by the Wall Street Journal, so I haven't got a chance to like go through it yet for all the details. But um, that would be an interesting one if there's a difference between if it's you know young Mexican immigrants before and older Chinese immigrants now. And I, su- I assume there's some there, there's some r- rhythm to this in the sense that you know the the U.S. government has decided that we want to have more Chinese, so we give more opportunity to people coming. Or is it just I mean, or is it just choice, or is this sort of just well, you know, it's part of it's going to be based on fam. I mean. You know, our immigration system is so um, geared towards letting people bring family over. So yeah, it might have something to do with a critical mass of Chinese people who want to now bring their could be older parents, grandparents, whatnot, uh, back to the U.S. Again, I haven't gotten to look through all the details, but uh, yeah, these are good questions at the very least. <laughs> OK, well, that's it. Um, thank you very much, Jordan, to, for, for showing up on your wedding day. And wearing, and wearing the tiara. And wearing the requested. tiara. So nice. Yeah. Um, there is a picture of me. on. T- by, for the listeners, if you want to know what I look like, Felix was kind enough to tweet out a photo of me with the tiara. So just go through his feed <laughs> and you will find me in all of my crown tiara glory. Clad. I can't believe yeah. you just mentioned that. Yeah. I, listen. I, Jordan retweeted it. I feel, wow. very, I feel very close to my listeners. So, <laughs> our, we so, love you, listeners. Yeah. So... Um, Yes, and thank you, Rob Cox, with your encyclopedic knowledge of the music business. And everything else. And everything else. All very useful. Um, (laughs) Thank you for listening. Um, Do subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Uh, Leave a review. Write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. Thank you also very much to Audrey Quinn, who came through with Flying Colors producing this show. To Joel Meyer, the managing producer, to Andy Bowers, the executive producer, and the whole Panoply network, which can be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs>